Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Before getting into the conversation I had with Jonathan, I would like to thank him for inviting me onto his live stream and for letting me take the audio for this episode. Conversations between Christians and atheists, specifically former believers like myself, are often messy and unproductive, with each side accusing the other of being unreasonable or even unnecessarily incendiary. And yes, Christians have said that some episodes of Still Unbelievable do fall into that category. This conversation between Jonathan and myself is not like that. We may disagree, and we may end the conversation with our original views intact, but I do think there is a better understanding of views and reasons, and sometimes that is the best we can hope for. This audio is edited to remove conversational artefacts, but nothing that we discussed is removed or changed. If you want to see the original unedited livestream video, the link to that is in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to an article that Jonathan mentions at around 45 minutes into the conversation. It is a discussion around how long it would take for two specifically related mutations to arise in a species, and suggests that, extrapolated to humans, this combination would be expected to take in the region of 216 million years. The article states that it exposes flaws in Michael Behe's arguments, and I have included a link to a response that Behe wrote. When Jonathan mentions this article, he compares the mentioned 216 million years for two specific mutations with the estimated 9 million years for human-chimp diversification. Now that I've had an opportunity to read the articles and think about the challenge, I think there is a flaw here in retrospectively looking back at something that happened and concluding the chances are too small for it to have happened. Natural selection through mutation can only work with what it's been given, and so whatever mutations occur, they will be the ones that get inherited. Imagine you have a standard deck of playing cards. You shuffle them, and deal them all out face up. That's the randomness of mutations. Take a note where the two and three of hearts are in the deck you just dealt. Now shuffle and deal out again. What are the chances of the two and three of hearts being in the same position again? It's going to be vanishingly small. Yet you manage to produce this combination on the first try. This is the challenge with looking back at what evolution produced, and then retrospectively calculating what the odds of that combination were. It is largely a pointless task in my opinion, because it distracts from what did happen, and needlessly complicates the conversation. With that introduction done, please enjoy the conversation that I had with Jonathan McClatchy. All right, so hello and welcome everyone. This is another live stream. I'm your host, Jonathan McClatchy, and I'm very honored to be joined uh, this afternoon by my friend Matthew Taylor. I've been on his 
podcast before uh, called Still Unbelievable, which is basically a response to uh, Unbelievable by Justin Barley and the, the podcast that Justin Barley uh, hosts uh, called Unbelievable, where he brings on Christians and non-Christians to have a constructive dialogue and debate. And, uh, and Justin subsequently, uh, 10 years into his uh, podcasting career, published a book called Unbelievable, question mark, uh, why after 10 years of talking to atheists, I'm still a Christian. And uh, Matthew Taylor is a contributor, I believe, to the response book that came out uh, in response to that particular book, um, which is uh, called Still Unbelievable. And so Matthew Taylor hosts the podcast Still Unbelievable, and it was on twice, actually, uh, once with yeah, I was on second time with Brian Blaze. Who was the uh, the guy I was on the first time? Was Andrew? It was and- Andrew Knight? Yes, he's Andrew Knight. Yeah. over on Still Unbelievable. Yes, yes. yes. So I had two very interesting, uh, stimulating discussions there, and so I wanted to return the favor and have Matthew on uh, my channel. I'm not sure if he's been on any Christian channels previously. Have you, Matthew? Or I'm not sure I have. So, and this is I'm also a live stream virgin as well. So, so two ticks. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. It's good to to have you here. So you um, um, also are an ex-Christian, and uh, you grew up in a Bible-believing Christian uh, family, and uh, into your adult life, you went through a deconversion process. Do you want to maybe give us a little bit of introduction to that and tell us a little bit about your story? Yes, certainly. And um, yeah, just to echo the thanks, uh, Jonathan, and uh, just as a very quick aside i do need to get you back onto still unbelievable because the the habit that andrew and i have is to ask our christian guests if they have a favorite bible character and you've been on twice and i've failed to ask you that question twice so shame on me but i've got an excuse to get you back again so we'll we'll see what we can do about uh, arranging that so very briefly uh, about myself i grew up in zambia in a missionary environment in zambia i went to boarding school from a very young age to a remote school in zambia that was run by people who are connected to the missionary environment so that's my brief background i loved growing up in zambia it's that that part of the country is is just in my blood and and i i miss growing up in that environment terribly but the kind of christianity which i was brought up was a very literalist very young earth creationist environment to the point where I don't even remember being being taught that, that Adam and Eve might have had, had daughters, for example. So it, it really was an extremely uh, literalist. I'm, one of the anecdotes I talk about or, or have mentioned is I remember we us getting new biology textbooks. And I remember us when these new biology textbooks opened, we were told to open them to a specific page where there was a brief paragraph which talked about uh, fish over generations their their fins turning into legs and they as they move from pond to pond and and that's how evolution was it was a really bad and ropey description of evolution but we were told to cross that out in pen because when it came to that chapter in the book we would be skipping over that chapter because we wouldn't be reading anything about evolution so that was the kind of environment which i grew up on so i left zambia i'm still had an english passport because my parents were uh, are english so came over to the UK when I left home at around about 18 and obviously was still a Christian into my young adulthood. And that young earth creationist upbringing followed with me. It changed and softened over the years, but I was still very literalist. And in order to, when I look back over my story, I can see retrospectively that there are points in my story where I had challenges. But I think when I was going through my my actual deconversion, deconstruction, let's just use those words interchangeably, they all mean roughly the same thing, which started around about my mid-30s, so about 15 years ago, 
I would say is probably when that really started. And I, I described the actual process of my deconversion taking about three years from when I first realized that I was actually having serious doubts to the point at which I actually said to myself, now I no longer believe, or when I realized that now I no longer believed. So that period I describe as about three years. But when I look back retrospectively, I think previous to that three years, there were little points where I can look back and I think, okay, I had challenges to my mindset then, which I needed to do something with. And I suspect that those just seeped in through. And certainly one of them was a really good friend of my girlfriend, now my wife at the time. She'd know, grown up with him, known him for, for many years. I got to know him, obviously, because he was her really good friend. And he disappeared from our lives uh, around about the time we got married. And there's a whole story about that. But around about that time, the last time we saw him, he came out to us as gay. And it was a really quite uncomfortable conversation. And I was very much an anti-gay person at that time. And... I feel, a little, if I'm honest, I feel a little bit of shame of that moment because what that person needed from us, his friends, was acceptance and love. And I utterly failed to give him that. And sorry, I'm actually tearing up talking about that because that's how, how much it affected me. And that's how, how much we miss that friendship as a, as a couple. And so that really shook me when I realized actually what had happened, that as a Christian, my duty was to act to this person in love. And I hadn't. That had a moment. I can't honestly say that that started my deconstruction, but that's just, like I say, one of those little points where challenges came to me where I realized I could be better, I, I, I should be better. And then on the flip side of that, I was as I got older, I got involved in cars, and there was a group of people that I knew, and we would just enjoy their cars. We would regularly do track days. And, and this was a group that I enjoyed being with because of the car connection. Being with these people was never about evangelizing. It was never about me being a Christian. It was just about the cars. And most, all of these people, I think, are atheists, although it turned out later that some of those people had been young deconverts, but I didn't know that at the time. And I've known these people now for 20 years, but obviously it was only a few years at the time. And eventually it came out that not only was I a Christian, but I was one of those evolution-denying Christians. So one day, I just on the online forum in which we discussed, the challenge just came out. And I thought, you know what? I've wanted to avoid the Christian subject with these guys, but maybe now's the time to do it. So I went all in, basically, with pushing uh, my, my Young Earth agenda. And they I, I want to be I want to be polite. So they basically handed my butt to me. You know, their knowledge of science was far superior to mine. They had an answer to every creationist trope that I wanted to give and I came away from that conversation feeling really battered feeling really bruised thinking how on earth could these people be so ignorant of the truth and it was a genuinely painful experience for me and I um there was also an element of cognitive dissonance in myself during that moment I didn't immediately recognize it as that, but it, it really was quite um, a difficult uh, emotional and mental experience for me. So I decided then I really needed to learn a lot more about evolution. So I put a lot more effort into evolution. And to kind of set the scene, around about this time, I'd got a job where I was working a lot from home. And 
that was also around about the time that podcasts started to become a thing. So I I was working at home. I had iTunes on the computer and I would listen to podcasts. And so I would be listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, to Point of Inquiry, which I think at the time was fronted by DJ Grothy. Um, and there were a few Christian podcasts. I can't remember any of them at the time. And Astronomy Cast was another podcast that I really, really enjoyed listening to. So a lot of these early podcasts that have been around for a long time. It, it will be a while before I think Unbelievable arrived, but I did eventually discover Unbelievable. But this was before, before Unbelievable. And what I found during that was when I listened to Christians talking about young earth creationism and scientists talking about evolution and cosmology and the age of the universe, I realized that there was actually a stark difference with the way that people talked and with the way that the scientists explained not only what they knew, but how they knew what they knew. And with the way that um, uh, the the young earth creationist pastors would, would talk about that. And it wasn't very long before I actually just started deleting the Young Earth Creationist podcast that I was listening to because I was being really unsatisfied by them. And around about that time, I I had an, a bit of an aha moment. So I need to pause and, and rewind a little bit. Around about the age of 20, I think it was, I had a very dramatic spiritual I call it a spiritual experience. It it started off with a um, a bit of a deliverance. Well, I say a bit of a deliverance. It, it was it was a deliverance. It, it it lasted a reasonable amount of time, and it was quite stressful. And it was a, it, it was accompanied with a really stressful time of my life. My to set the seat to kind of set the scene on that. My parents separated and ultimately divorced when I was nine. Again, that was terrible for me. And I always say that. My teenage years, I was depressed for the, almost the entirety of my teenage years because of the fallout of this terrible and really, really painful separation that my parents went through. And it affected me deeply and it traumatized me. And when I look back, I'm fairly confident that my teenage years just accompanied by, by a dark depression for the entirety of it. But I didn't know it at the time. And as a result of all that, the relationship with my father at that time was enormously fractured. And there are times when I hadn't spoken to my father for quite some time. And that period of my life was when I was in a really dark place in my relationship with my father. Um, and so this deliverance experience sort of like came in about that. I'd had some counselling for my relationship with my father. I desperately wanted to do something positive to help that relationship. And that all came to a head all in that kind of weekend. Um, and so there was that deep emotional trauma. But the key moment I want to mention is about a week after that experience, I had a moment. And to shorten the whole story, it was effectively um, sleep paralysis but it wasn't diagnosed as sleep paralysis at the time. It was diagnosed as a demonic attack. And um, I was utterly terrified by the, this experience. And I woke up and um, my mother at the time went to a church that did a lot of um, spiritual involvement, spiritual healing and uh, deliverance kind of ministry. So she was the person I spoke to about this and she spoke to the people that she knew and it, it was all said, yeah, that was definitely in a, an attack from the devil you need to pray on the blood of jesus if it ever happens again it, it never happened again but anyway so it was an experience which i always called a spiritual experience and the reason why i mentioned it was 
in the times I had my doubts in my 20s, if I ever doubted the existence of God, I always went back to that moment because I thought if God is real, sorry, if God isn't real, how do I explain that moment? You know, if, if God and the devil and demons are real, that is the only way that that can be explained. And that would be the anchor which would bring me back if ever I had a, a doubt uh, about Christianity, a doubt about God being real. So that's why I mentioned that. It was one of those moments which really kept me uh, in my faith. So when I go back forward again to I'm in this job at home, we've literally just had our daughter. I'm, I'm in my mid-30s and I'm listening to these podcasts. My young earth creationism is weakening and I'm starting to appreciate that the universe is old, the earth is old, that species have evolved. And one podcast I happen to listen to talks about sleep paralysis and describes the, the sleep paralysis. And I go, that's that thing that I had in my bedroom, in my flat all those years ago that woke me up utterly terrified. That's what I had. And suddenly this thing that had been diagnosed as a spiritual attack had a natural explanation. And it was really quite confusing at first. I thought, wow, okay, what do I do with this? And I suddenly, and I literally, I say literally, I don't know whether it was that moment or whether it was several weeks later, but I stopped believing that that moment was a spiritual moment and that it was just a natural moment of sleep paralysis which is well understood and because of my state because of my mental state and my beliefs at the time I just went to what worked but was wrong and that was probably the very first domino that actually genuinely fell in the whole thing I think probably what was so devastating about it for my story was because it was a key moment that I anchored to my anchor had got taken away and that literally allowed everything else to, to fall. So I started questioning everything else. So of course, within the whole old earth and the evolution narrative, obviously the Adam and Eve question comes up. So I, then, I now had permission to doubt that Adam and Eve existed, which of course, so you've got all these other classic bits from the Old Testament. You've got the Tower of Babel, you, you've got the global floods, uh, and so so those go and then you start questioning other ones you know like the battles of Joshua you know like the city of Ai you know did did, did that really happen uh, and then you've got um, Joseph and the exodus from Egypt and did that really happen and so all these key moments start evaporating into something that I'm free to not believe it doesn't necessarily mean I know exactly what happened it's just I'm free to not believe them. And so when all of these things go, you then get to the New Testament. You think, well, what do I do now? I've taken away a lot of the foundation for the New Testament, a lot of the build-up to the New Testament. What do I do about Jesus? And if the whole point of Jesus was because man was fallen and the redemption of man, but now I don't believe in Adam and Eve, and I don't believe any of that story. And so I can't explain the fall of man. So the fall of man has been taken away. Well, if the fall of man's been taken away, then Jesus is irrelevant. There's no need for Jesus. I, the whole Jesus' story makes absolutely no sense if there isn't a fall. So maybe that story isn't quite. And so all this creeping doubt and 
unable to explain it. And in one of the episodes that, that you were on with us, you asked me directly, am I a mythicist? And I, was, and I think I answered, I'm on the fence. I don't know how to sway with that. And I'm pretty much the same. I, I certainly don't believe the miracles, but I don't know if I have enough information to even believe in the character of Jesus. I'm prepared to accept there was a character of Jesus. I certainly don't go down the road was Jesus' character never existed but I don't accept the miracles. So it's, the point is that the whole salvation, redemption of man ceased to become relevant or necessary. And I think when I got to that point, I said, I got, I realized that I had to answer the question of God. And I don't, I can't remember. It was 15 years ago. I'm a little bit fuzzy on some of these technicality details, but I obviously had to then answer the question of God, because certainly if God is real, then I need to work back and then decide what part of the Bible narrative does work with God and, and how can I make it fit. So I had to land at, at the question of God. And I knew it couldn't be the literalist, young earth creationist background that I grew up with. It would have to be something else. And I spent goodness knows how many nights lying there asleep, trying to work out what part of Christianity can I work, how liberal do I want to go with my Christianity if I can't accept parts of the Bible? And which bits can I take? And I think where I went was, if there are bits, certainly like the miracles, that I can't accept, then there's precious little of Christianity that I can take. And at some point, I went through the thought process of, am I, if I do still accept Christianity, aren't I just guilty of picking the bits that fit, picking the bits that are comfortable and rejecting the bits that are uncomfortable. And doesn't the Bible itself warn against taking that kind of attitude? So am I actually in a safe place? And if I go down the road of picking only the bits that are comfortable to me, and I acknowledge that I'm a fallible person, I don't know what's true and don't know what's not true, then you can pretty much guarantee that whatever package I end up with a significant chunk is going to be wrong. And if I don't know which is bits are wrong and I have no way of knowing which bits are wrong, then what's the issue with just rejecting all of it? And, I, and so at some point I got to that question, I went, oh, can I? Is, is that an okay? And that was a really unsettling place to be, to actually say that to yourself. And again, I don't know, I can't remember exactly where in this three-year process that actual thought went. Obviously, it was towards the end, but I, I can't tell you in all honesty how far from the end that, that was. But I think once I'd asked myself that question, I think to all intents and purposes, it was game over. I just needed to accept it, that it was game over. And I, I didn't like it. That that kind of letting go of God was a, was a difficult thing to do because it meant that letting go of God meant that I had to rethink a lot, awful lot of things, you know, the whole morality coming from God, for example, you know, which I'd been fed on from a very young child. You only know to be good because God's there, God is spirit in you because you believe in God. You only know what's the right thing to do. That, that kind of, and the old, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us uh, gives us guidance and all, that kind of thing had been fed to me constantly you know, from a very young child. I had to work out how I was going to do that because if I said no to God, it meant that 
I had to make the the I had to accept the position that all of these things were me. And when all you've had in your life is you've got supernatural guidance in making decisions, you know, you pray before you apply for a job, for example, or you, you pray before you relocate to a different town and you, you pray before you choose a new church to go to, all those kinds of things, it was suddenly, I'm not going to do any of those things anymore. It's quite, um, I, want, I want to say unsettling, but it's not really the right word. It's a strange place to be when you realize all of these things that you're used to, it's like a blanket that's been around you for your entire life. And you're suddenly at a point where, you know what, actually, it feels like I should take this off. But you don't know what it feels like to take it off. It was, I, I hope the metaphor works for, for those who are listening. But it was a really strange place to be. But then eventually, and this is a moment that I remember, I was basically, I was walking back home from doing a shopping trip in town. And I was just going through these things one more time. They'd been going through my mind for weeks and for weeks. And I thought, you need to decide, Matthew. You need to decide that your mindset during all of this isn't going to work. You know, it's one way or the other. And I said, okay, it's a no then. And it was just like, suddenly it was like, yeah, I'm free. And it was really odd. And I felt it really was it was like a weight was lifted and I, I appreciate that the Christians aren't going to like that metaphor coming but it really was how I felt and I felt like I was walking a little bit taller in that moment because all of that questioning and all of that doubting over those three years it it takes a toll and when you decide right I'm done and it wasn't a sudden decision you know the the sudden was the realization that this is what it and yeah, and it really was, it was freedom of, I'm free, I'm liberated, life is great, I'm not going to be struck down by lightning, and I'm still not going to go out and murder anybody, and it's wonderful. And so that's, and basically, that's where I got there. It's a real rocket ship story through. I don't know how long that took me, um, but happy to to take any questions any details on that i'll just note as a as a quick thing actually we, we talked about this off air so i'll go and answer it straight to, straight away actually there is obviously the, the question of, of my wife and what happened about that i would like to say that there was a lot of fear through going through this process because what i haven't said is also going through this process i did read quite a lot of blogs about from people who'd been through a similar process to me so I'd read a lot of blogs. I got involved in a bit of a blogging community of people who, who'd done that. And what I'd noticed was there's a very, very high attrition rate of marriages where one partner deconverts and the other one stays. And that world was a world full of pain for the people that experienced that. And I was terrified of, of that happening, utterly, utterly terrified. I didn't want to do that. And... Um, a phrase that I've said, I think it was on the Grace for Atheist podcast where I told, told my story. I said, I tried not to hurt the person I cared about the most by being quiet about it. But it comes out and in being quiet about it, I hurt the person who I care about the most. So I, I would like to say if anyone's listening, don't do what I did. I, I don't, I did do the wrong thing and I should have been open about it. I should have shared my concerns uh, with my wife. It was probably the single biggest mistake I made in the whole of that. Um, and I, I 
I want to acknowledge and not not hide away from that. It was it was a rotten mistake to make. I denied my wife uh, uh, the the shared journey with me, regardless of what was going to happen. And it was another couple of years before she actually found out. Yeah, you know, I was it, when she did eventually find out. I was actually surprised that she hadn't worked it out. Yeah, so that was that came out as a bit of a shock. So I'll, I'll stop there. I've talked for for long enough. And I'm happy to take any any questions or, or comments. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story. It seems to me that there were the primary issues that were of concern to you as you deconstructed your faith were the sleep paralysis issue, for one, being a natural explanation for what you had interpreted previously as being uh, some sort of demonic spiritual attack. Um, secondly, becoming aware of the fact that young earth creationism doesn't stand up to intellectual scientific scrutiny. So you had concerns in regards to how to best interpret the early chapters of Genesis, and especially the historicity of Adam and Eve and the theological then stream impact that might have on the mission of Jesus of Nazareth and so forth. And third, the fact that we have miracles reported in scripture and the um, inability to accept miraculous accounts. Is that a fair summary of the main issues? That's, yeah, that, that's probably, I would probably add more weight to the evidentialist and young earth creationist uh, side. But like I say, it was 15 years ago, and I have to be honest, I'm a little bit fuzzy on what was important to me then. I, I would imagine that what I would report as important now might not necessarily match what was important then, but I think you have hit the, the key issues because certainly one person who knows me well and I, I care about their first question to me when I told them was, well, what about that deliverance experience? So that certainly is a key thing. And that was certainly something that I had to answer. So yeah, you're right. And I, I personally might realize this if you've listened to any of my other um, interviews or discussions online, that um, I, I, I tend to be naturally skeptical personally of personal subjective experiences. Um, I, I prefer to search for natural explanations before I infer a, um, a supernatural cause. That's just uh, the way I'm wired. So when one asks me why I believe Christianity to be true, my answer to that is that I believe solely on the basis of the public evidence as I understand it. So I, I personally find the, the evidence for, let's say, the resurrection, which you and I have talked about, before at length, um, I, I find that to be a compelling reason to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and, and so forth, and that that is God's vindication of Jesus' messianic and divine credentials. So let's start maybe with the young earth creationist. I, as you probably know, I'm not a young earth creationist. I, I think that there's overwhelming evidence that the earth and the universe are very, very ancient. And I, I even think that there is some good evidence for common descent. Um, I, I think that you can make a, a good case for common descent um, from the scientific evidence. Um, I'm more skeptical of the sufficiency of natural processes, chance, physical necessity, or natural selection being constantly sufficient to explain the complexity and diversity and design that we see all around us. What was it, though, about the rejection of young respirationism that caused you to, in turn, reject the historicity of a robust Adam and Eve? It was purely the common, yeah, it would effectively be humans are descended from what is essentially a common ancestor between us and the ape, the other apes. It would be that. So 
my understanding of evolution is that there was never actually a first human. It was, you know, we evolved from from what came before. So actually identifying an individual who could be the first human is effectively impossible. And also the knowledge that once we have got identifiable humans, the population of humans was never particularly low. You know, it might have been down as low as thousands or tens of thousands, but it was certainly, it is not anticipated that it was low as hundreds. So certainly down to a couple is highly, highly improbable. So it was a combination of those two things makes a, a single couple not really viable. To, to If they existed, they either existed, there's, there's two options that I've heard of Adam and Eve existing. One would be a God-ordained couple as part of the existing population. Uh, and the other one is, I think it's one that, that Joshua Somedar says, where there was an existing human population and they were created and um, literally plonked into the Garden of Eden alongside these existing humans and they effectively uh, bred into them. I'm not sure how we could validate either of those options scientifically. So beyond a, a way of being able to test for them, I don't see why they should be taken any more seriously than interesting ideas. Okay, so I'm not as convinced that the population genetics data necessarily precludes the possibility of there being a primordial couple. I, I do think that it does if you place that primordial couple within the past 100,000 years. But I think if you are prepared to go further back than that, I, I do think I think that there are population genetic models which are consistent with an historic, a, a primordial pair that we're all descended from. But let's just suppose for the sake of argument that you're correct. I, I think that the reason why many people consider Adam and Eve to be incompatible with the idea of common ancestry is not common ancestry per se, but rather gradualism. The idea that there's, there's never a first human per se on the evolutionary scenario in the same way that it's very difficult to quantify how many hairs it takes on a human face to qualify as a beard, right? We recognize the beard when you see one, but it's not like you get one more hair and now you have a beard when you did yeah. previously, right? And so, and likewise, when an adolescent becomes an adult, there's not a defined day. I mean, we might say That's my favorite day, analogy, that one there, yes. Yeah, which, but it's, which it's, day did my teenager yeah. become an adult? Yeah, quite. Yeah, it's, it's fairly arbitrary. You might say it's an 18th birthday, but, you know, it's, it's a convention. It's, it's a very gradual thing. And likewise, on a gradualist scenario, there's no first human per se. It's, it's all on a continuum. Yeah. Um, however, if you accept the premise, as I do, that life exhibits unmistakable hallmarks of design and that natural processes of chance and physical necessity are demonstrably insufficient to explain the appearance of design that we observe in biology um, and that the, the time scales that um, are allowed for the human, the, the chimp-like ancestor to human transition and they're just far too short based on population genetics analysis for natural selection to be the, the best explanation, to be an adequate explanation, then that opens the door for moving away from that gradualistic scenario to embrace a more uh, saltationist view. And it, once you start, so for, for instance, you could envision that God created um, humans uh, using um, a previous organism's genome as a template, for example, which would result in the same sort of nascent hierarchical distribution that we predict on common descent. Now, one might say that that's ad hoc. However, um, I think that uh, that is less of a concern if you 
recognize, as I do, that naturalistic processes are inadequate to explain the A to B transition, then I think that it's legitimate to, think, to consider whether there are any alternative scenarios to that gradualistic paradigm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I um, Where would I go with that? Because there's a couple of points I, I would think on that. I think the, probably the first thing I would say is under, under an evolutionary uh, model where what is what works best is more likely to be inherited for by the next generation what we're going to get to after not many generations is something that looks designed for the environment that is in so i'm very happy to accept that the evolutionary model will end up with something that people are quite happy to interpret as design so i have no no issue with people looking at things and saying that looks design i could yeah it it may do but how, how do we test that it is? And I'm sure you've heard this one before, but for people who believe that God created everything and that therefore everything is designed by God, how do you identify, how do you differentiate design from non-design when you when everything is effectively designed? We probably don't need to go down, down that road. The one that I would stick with is you know, natural selection and evolution will end up with something that works in its environment and de facto looks designed. So I, I, I just don't see an issue with that. So I don't see it being a problem. Okay, sure. So just a few points there. So let's circle around, first of all, to, to the issue of Adam and Eve. So even if you have uh, an initial population that's more than two individuals, uh, let's say 10,000 individuals, what have you, let's say that they, they are created de novo by God, by divine fiat, as opposed to a gradual scenario. Now that doesn't preclude that their genome has been synthesized using a previous or organism's genome as a template. That's, that's, a, that's a possible view, I think. So let's suppose that we have an initial population and you have Adam and Eve within that initial population, that founding population, who serve as kind of the representatives, the tribal representative of that population. And uh, so you've got this corporate representation scenario where Adam and Eve serve as the first priest and priestess of mankind. That, I think, salvages the traditional understanding of Adam and Eve, even without an initial primordial couple, where Adam and Eve are still... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it and it also takes care of certain issues like um, where did King get his wife and so forth without yeah. getting into incestuous issues. Yeah. It also takes care of them. Um, so in in Genesis four, where you have Cain being concerned that someone's going to find him and kill him, well, who's there? There's no yeah. other people. It also takes care of well, who's he building a city with in Genesis four and so yeah. forth. So it's, there there seems to be at least it's not conclusive, but there are suggestive clues in scripture that there may also be other people around at the time. Yeah, and I, I think it's perfectly um, legitimate for a Christian to suggest tentatively that one possible model is that Adam and Eve are the representatives, the tribal representatives of the founding population of mankind, uh, which, I, which I think, w- would that be a legitimate perspective from your, view, from your viewpoint? Yes. Um, let's assume you've got me to a point where I accept there's a God again. That would certainly be an option. And I suspect that if I was to go back into Christianity, that's probably something, an idea that I would find very attractive, but I'm not there. So I haven't got the preconditions required to accept that as a proposal, but, but certainly I, I see how it fits. The pushback I would want to give on that idea is it's an idea that's trying to fit a narrative rather than evidence. Let's explain the evidence. Do you see what, do you see what I'm saying? And I think it's going back about it the wrong way. It's starting from the Genesis narrative and saying, okay, well, let's just 
accept on face value that that's the truth? What can we retrospectively, dis- what story can we retrospectively give to humanity to fit into that? I'd rather see some archaeological evidence found, uh, some bones saying, oh, this descendant couple have got DNA that's different to what we see from humans who have come from the common ancestry tree. Why is this the case? You know, is there a way that we can explain this or, or, or something like that? Or that kind of thing would genuinely be a problem for me if that kind of evidence came out. And because then we would have evidence where there's a narrative that could actually fit that physical evidence. And the, you know, the standard evolutionary model would probably struggle to explain that. So I, w- I would like to see that kind of evidence trickle down. And then we go, okay, we've worked out how, what that is from the evidence that we found. Uh, it's this b- building into it from the wrong direction, which I quibble with a little bit. Okay, sure. That, that's fair. So here, just a few comments. Before I address that particular point, let's circle back to one thing you said in your previous remarks, um, where you said that in order to make the argument for design and biology, we have to find a way of distinguishing between design and not design. So if, uh, and this is, I think is a problem with an argument that is sometimes ill-advisedly put forward by the likes of Ray Comfort, that um, you know, we know that a, paint, a painting requires a painter, therefore a creation requires a creator. Yeah. And of course, as you know, that begs the question because yes. the whole debate is, is this a creation that we're actually living in, right? Yeah. Um, and if, if the whole universe is a painting, then how do we know it's a painting? Because there's nothing to distinguish it from. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no um, non-painting that we could compare it to, um, yeah. no point of contrast. Um, and I completely agree with that critique of this kind of a Ray Comfort style approach to making that case. However, I think you can make a more nuanced argument for design by recognizing, as I do, that not everything is designed. Um, and that, uh, for example, I think that I don't think the Grand Canyon is designed. I don't think God chiseled out the Grand Canyon. Right? I think it's the product of chance and necessity. Right. Um, likewise, snowflakes. I don't think God's up in, mm-hmm. in heaven cutting up with a pair of scissors, you know, the snowflake. He's got better and, things to do with his time. <laughs> exactly. These are the products of natural law, chance, chance and physical necessity, right? And we can distinguish, I think, between things which are the products of mind and conscious deliberative agency and those which are the product of physical necessity and chance um, because but and by virtue of the possession of a semiotic dimension or, or complex specified information that is characteristic of design systems and not characteristic of non-design systems for example when you read a book we know that it's product of design because the let the letters spell out meaningful sentences and meaningful paragraphs. And we recognize that there's there's a higher level objective, which is accomplished by the working together of the numerous letters, which are arranged in a particular way in order to spell out a meaning. And I think that when we look at biological systems, we see um, information content that is um, intrinsic to the hereditary molecules of DNA and RNA that um, DNA spells out code which is transcribed into messenger RNA and then at the ribosome it gets translated into another language, namely protein language or amino acids that spell out um, the instructions for folding a protein into a three-dimensional structure based on the properties of the side chains of those amino acids. Now, I, I realize this is your expertise, so don't worry about giving a comprehensive rebuttal to, to the design argument, but do you see where I'm, where I'm coming from? Yes, I do. And yeah, this is a little bit above my pay grade in terms of the knowledge that that 
probably I would, this is definitely an area where I'd need to defer to the experts. And obviously the obvious question then is, well, which experts do you trust? And uh, obviously I'm, I believe the evolutionary experts who, who say that you know, this appears to have evolved from more primitive form, like we had, we had RNA before and then we had DNA and uh, they're working on how DNA may, sorry, RNA may have, may have come about what the what sugars or whatever it was that the prefix set. Yeah, I much prefer looking at the stars than looking at uh, what's at the other end of a microscope. So my interest is much more in, in the stars, the evolution of stars, formation of planets and those kinds of things. So I defer to the vast majority of biologists in the arena who say that they, they're happy that this evolved and it, it wasn't created. Uh, probably the other thing I would say, actually, which I think is probably be the more important thing for my from my perspective, is let's say for argument's sake, there is a God and God is the source of everything that we've got. Then I would want to see the evidence that there's a God behind it in all the bits that matter. If we leave the RNA and DNA for, for just for a moment and, and go go to the stars and go go to the universe, now we we've got really fairly good models of the expansion of, of the universe and how solar systems form, etc. I understand that those sort of things better and and you know protoplanetary disks and all that, and that happens really well. And we've got physics that explains that really well because I've had one of the arguments that I've had with somebody else is moons around planets they all fall into a really ordered pattern i go, well of course they do it's basic physics after millions of years of orbiting an object the the orbiting rocks and moons are going to be in a pattern because if they're not in a stable pattern they'll self-destruct or the physics will destroy them or they'll get flung out so you will end up with a with a nice pattern so i get that and i understand it it looks pretty and i understand why people at first sight might say well, that must have been put there, but actually we understand the physics behind it. We can rule out, arrogantly, uh, rule out design there. And then if we go to common descent, etc., you know, the, the theory of evolution, I accept, explains really well, you know, features. I know there's a little bit of a, a disagreement from, from you in that, but it, it works. So, and again, you know, we don't need design for mutations uh, coming in. We don't need to see uh, something creating a mutation. We understand how mutations happen, and, and sometimes they're good and, and, and sometimes they're bad. And we don't see the obvious design in that either. So if the outlier is RNA and DNA, and we, we don't have, a, let's say we just don't have a good explanation for that. So uh, the conclusion is it must be done. Why is it only there? You know, surely I would want to see if, if God has created everything, I would want to see that problem in RNA and DNA, and I want to see that problem in planetary formation, and I would want to see that problem in galaxy formation, and I'd want to see that problem in diversification of species, and I'd want to see it everywhere. And I think if it only comes out in one point, then maybe the reason why it only comes out in one point is we just don't have a good explanation naturally for that point and we're going to get there. But I don't see why that should drive the designer of everything else. Um, have, I, have I explained myself well there? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it follows that if we have certain features of the world that exhibit evidence of design, that all features of the world should exhibit evidence of design. I'm not sure that that follows, but I, I would argue that uh, well, first of all, you, you want to defer to the experts, which is fine. But most origin of life researchers would admit, I think, that the 
origin of life research is at an impasse, right? And so there, there is no cute currently explanation for the origins of the first life, the origins of the first RNA polymers, the origins of the first you know, protein structures and so forth. Uh, how do you explain the, the origins of you know, DNA replication with all of its different components that need to work together? Um, it, how do you even get from an RNA to a DNA world, uh, DNA protein world? It's, no, no one really knows the answers to those questions. Um, and then I, I would argue that there are many macromolecular machines which seem to defy explanation by natural selection, random mutation, the origins of protein structures which seem to be extraordinarily rare within sequence space. Um, I would refer you to Douglas Axe's work on that topic, although there's there's other research as well, um, Douglas Axe most notably um, on the, the rarity of um, uh, amino acid sequences forming stable and functional protein structures. And then you've also got the issue of um, um, population genetics and how you, so the fossil record gives you a pretty good handle on how much time you have to accomplish A to B transitions in the history of life. So for instance, the human chimp divergence is thought to have happened around 6 million years ago. And there was a paper published in the Journal of Genetics 2008 by Rick Durrett and Tina Schmidt, who are two mathematicians. And they basically presented a population genetics model where, and, and these are these are um, mainstream guys, they're not intelligent design theorists, but they were doing a population genetics model, looking at how much time it would take for two-step mutation to arise in a transcription factor binding site. And according to their math, in a hominid population, bearing in mind that until very recently, the size of the hominid population, the effective or the breeding population size was something like 20,000 individuals per generation. And they calculated that it would require about 216 million years for that to occur in a hominid population. Whereas if you actually look at the fossil record, you have about 6 million years. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just for a two-step coordinated mutation, never mind the, the entire transition. And uh, you could look at... Um, the whale series, for example, which is a very well-known, very kind of the flagship example of an evolutionary transition. The fossil record is going from a, a land-dwelling terrestrial mammal, Pagasitas, um, down to Dorodon basilosaurus, which are fully aquatic whales in a period of about nine million years. If you take the most the, the most generous estimate of the fossil record, how much time that you have to accomplish that transition. When you look at the, the sorts of anatomical changes that are required, you need redu substantial reduction of the hind limbs. Uh, the forelimbs have to be transformed into flippers. You need a ball vertebra instead of a sacral vertebra because the tail, instead of wagging side to side like a dog's tail, has to move up and down. You need a uh, special lung surfactant because in whales diving back to the surface, the lung needs to re-expand very quickly. You need reorganization of kidney tissue for intake of salt water. You have to have reorientation of the fetus for giving birth underwater. You have to have um, modification of the mammary glands for nursing them underwater. There's, it's just on and on. And one of the most remarkable changes is the need for an intra-abdominal pentacurin-hydrogen system because in whales, unlike in most mammals, where um, the testes are actually hanging outside the body, and if the testes fail to descend, you get sterility. In whales, the testes are actually inside the body, right next to the muscles generating heat during swimming. And so you have to actively cool down the gland, which is done in a manner similar to a modern refrigeration system by effectively shunning cooled blood from the tail flukes to an axis of arteries and veins that dissipates heat from the gland. So Basically, the testes are, are bathed in cool blood and kept below core body temperature. Now, if we imagine that just two mutations are necessary to accomplish that transition, where you have the testes inside the body and that elaborate intra-abdominal current, current, current heat system, 
uh, Richard Sternberg, who's an evolutionary biologist, basically modified the equations of the George Schmidt paper to accommodate for the fact that we're dealing with more individuals and so forth. And according to his calculation for that transition, for that just that two-step ordinary mutation, where we just need two mutations that are by themselves non-adaptive, but adaptive when taken in combination, would require something like 43.4 million years for that to occur. But if you look at the fossil record, you've only got 9 million years for the entire transition to occur. So I, I would argue that it just doesn't add up mathematically. And I, and I realize this is your expertise, but um, this, is, this is kind of where I'm coming from and why I tend to have skepticism, at least, although I think that there's evidence for common descent, I, I, I think it's important to distinguish between the pattern of common descent or hereditary continuity and the process which pur pur purports to explain that pattern. Uh, is it, it, because common descent wasn't something that was new with Darwin, right? That goes, you can find that going back to the ancient Greeks. What was new with Darwin was the idea that natural selection coupled with chance mutation, or we didn't know what mutations were at the time, but chance variations, could explain the appearance of design without recourse to a designing intelligence. Um, and so demonstrating common descent doesn't actually show you that. It only shows that organisms are related by descent and doesn't actually tell you anything about the cause of evolutionary change over time. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. If I've understood you right, it's, it's one individual who's calculated these years so I guess the obvious question is how do we know his his mass is correct and I'm, I'm, I obviously don't know anything about his work to be able to critique that specifically. One thing which did have a big impact on me uh, when I was going through this this questioning phase was I spent a period of time working at the Natural History Museum in London creating a, an IT system for them I'm a software developer by, by trade and while I was working there they had an exhibition, which I think is called in the Inside Out. Basically, what it is in summary is many of the animals around on Earth are effectively, they've got formaldehyde or something similar injected into their veins after, they, after they've died, obviously. Um, and so that you get their blood system plasticized and then the body is dissolved away in acid. So what you're left with is a skeleton and this plasticized uh, diagram of all the blood vessels in the world. and then these specimens are hung up and you and i was walking around this mesmerized because whether you, when you go to the tiniest shrew and you go to the bats and then you go to the apes and you go to the elephants and you go to the whales and you can see they're all mammals the the structural similarities in terms of the skeletons where the muscle points are key parts of the, of the blood system and it was it was again it was one of those um, revolutionary moments uh, for me where I took a took a step forward, and, and so there is absolute commonality. And then when you compare the mammals to to the not mammals, you can see where there's differences. So certainly on on the whole point of the whales, you know whales belong to that same family as, as on land mammals. When you just look at what you've got there, it, it's really really hard to question it. And then, of course, you couple that with the knowledge that, and I believe I'm accurate in saying that the whale and the hippo are very, very close genetically when you when you map their DNA. They're, they are close color cousins. Maybe even the hippo is the closest cousin to the whale that we've got. So again, th there is something there. So it's very definitely a strong hint of a, a land mammal or a semi-aquatic land mammal moving into the ocean, or did it go the other way, whichever. Um, so there is, there are definitely pointers and indicators there that there's something going on. 
so I, I certainly yeah. think that it's it's a it's a sound conclusion to come to based yeah, sure. on the evidence that we've got. Obviously, the time is a challenge, and I can't speak to the time. Yeah, the, yeah, the challenge so, is to work out how it happened rather yeah, than course. did it happen. Yeah, and I, I'm not contesting that it happened. I'm, I'm not contesting that the A to B transitions that we observe in the history of life happened historically. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm I'm not rejecting the idea of of common descent per se. The question is, I'm did that help it along? Yeah, I'm, I, I think that there are points in the history of life where there are infusions of information into the biosphere, and uh, you know, I, I'm not su suggesting the, the sort of tinkerer hypothesis where there's every, every um, few generations there's just a tink tinkering mm. with the DNA. That would but, be uh, hard I, to measure, I think. Yeah, I, I'm suggesting that there are points in the history of life, such as you know, the Cambrian explosion and other events in the history of life, where there is infusion of information to the biosphere, such that you have these radically new forms of life emerge, and even possibly having God may have used um, the genomes of previous organisms as, as a template for the synthesis of new forms of life. I don't rule that out, and. Um, one, as I said before, one, one may argue that that hypothesis is ad hoc, but I think that that is less of a concern if we have independent reason to believe, as I think we do, that there is design going on and that naturalistic processes are inadequate to explain the complexity of life. But I, I did want to circle back to the other point you raised earlier, which is about, so I, I talked about Adam and Eve and the uh, the scenarios that that might uh, that might work or hold traction um, in regards to uh, subscribing to a robust view of Adam and Eve, and your objection was that that seems to you to be ad hoc because we don't. It seems that we are adhering to the theory first and then going looking for a way to make the data fit. And it is absolutely correct that we want to avoid just trying to make the data fit because making your theory consistent with the evidence is not the same thing as showing that your theory is confirmed by the evidence and also not the same thing as showing that your theory is not disconfirmed by the evidence because you can make any manner, all manner of things consistent with the evidence. And you may have seen uh, Stephen Law has a great lecture on this where he talks about his theory that dogs are actually invaders from the planet Venus. And uh, he, he, he makes all You've seen that? You make all... something's ringing a bell about that. I'm going to have to look it up now. Okay. If I've seen, if I've been exposed to it, it was a while ago. But something yeah, is ringing it, a bell. It's, it's funny. He, he manages to make all the data consistent with it, but it's, it's still <laughs> awesome. a disconfirmed theory, right? So, um, why dogs are not cats? Surely cats would be the more <laughs> obvious one to pick for that. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I agree with you in principle. However, I think that if we can show, and I realize that this is the premise on which we will disagree, but if we accept the premise as I do. That um, that Jesus of Nazareth really is who he said he was. He rose from the dead, and he's um, the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, and, and, um, and divine, and so forth. Then his testimony is itself indirect evidence, such that things that he testifies to be true should um, that that should be taken as at least a prima facie basis for believing that to be so. Right? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I'm, you need to get me over the hurdle of why I should believe that, but it makes right. sense. But, but in principle, um, you could make the argument that way, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it doesn't... So um, I would make a distinction between direct evidence and indirect evidence, that um, I would concede that we don't have any direct evidence for Adam and Eve, but I think that if, um, if we accept the premise Jesus rose from the dead and therefore Jesus 
claims to be Israel's Messiah and divine and the divine son of God are substantiated, then that provides some indirect evidence, which could in principle be overturned. I mean, it's a, it's a two-way thing. So evidence against Adam and Eve could also in principle undermine that because it could lower the prior probability. But in the same way, Jesus' resurrection, uh, the evidence bearing on that could raise the prior probability of an, of an historical Adam and Eve, which then could provide a reasonable, rational motivation for looking for explanations of how an historical Adam and Eve could actually be, could actually fit with the data, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe that's a good transition to talk about your um, your third primary objection that you talked about in your testimony about um, the historicity of miracles and how would we justify the miraculous aspects of the text. Um, do, do you want to go that direction? Or? Yeah, yeah, we can do. It's basically boils down to I don't know how we could know is a real thing. And certainly for somebody who a believes in God and then believes that, that Jesus is who he said he was, i.e. The, the son of God. I understand why miracles are not a difficult thing to believe in that. The hurdle you have with me is that you can't get me to God through those miracles. Because if I don't already believe in God, I've got no reason to take the miracles seriously. So again, it's probably the wrong direction to go with. I would need to accept first that there's a mechanism by which miracles could occur in order for miracles to occur. So my, I would probably default to something like either it was a mistaken account or the people who wrote it can't be trusted, probably one of those two. And I, th I think if I'm really honest, you would have a difficult time getting me off one of those two plates. Get, get me yeah. to believing in God first sure. <laughs> and, and then the miracles will be easier to follow. So let, let me challenge you on, uh, so I think you've got this backwards. <laughs> okay. Um, so let me give you an analogy to help explain why, why I think you might have this backwards. Um, let's suppose that I subscribe to the hypothesis that Matthew Taylor exists. Okay. How much does that raise the prior probability that I will receive an email from Matthew Taylor tomorrow? Not much, a little bit, but not much. Okay. Um, on the other hand, let's say that I receive an email from someone who identifies himself as Matthew Taylor tomorrow, unless I didn't have prior knowledge that you existed. How much does that raise the prior probability that a guy called Matthew Taylor exists? Well, it raises it quite a lot. So quite, unless I think it's a scammer, I, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but it's still, that doesn't happen very often. I don't receive emails much from scammers and people who identify themselves as a particular individual generally turn out to be that individual. Yeah. So um, it raises the probability quite a bit that a guy called Matthew Taylor exists. Yeah. So I, likewise, I would argue that if God exists, if we demonstrate that God exists, let's say through the Kalam argument, the fine-tuning argument, biological design arguments, so forth, let's say that we accept the premise God exists, then it only slightly increases the prior probability that, the that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead any more than it raises the probability that I'm going to be raised from the dead or that you're going to be raised from the dead, right? If we have direct evidence that Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead, and that the best explanation seems to be that the God of Israel has raised Jesus from the dead, then that's a lot of, that raises the prior probability that God exists quite a lot, right? So I, I, do, do you see where I'm coming from there? I do. Yeah. Obviously, we're, we're working on the assumption that those, those events actually happened, and I think that's where the problem is. You know, it, I think the UFO phenomena is probably a better analogy for, than the email phenomena. You know, there are a great many people who report seeing UFOs, but is there any likelihood that uh, alien spacecraft have actually entered our atmosphere? Yeah, I, I would 
strongly suggest that it's, it's zero on that. And it's far more likely that, that people claiming to see UFOs are either mistaken or or fraudulent. But let, let's go off the, let's leave the intentional fraudulent way that can leave a bad taste. Let's just say that they're either misinformed or mistaken. Yeah, and I'm perfectly happy to consider the hypothesis of fraud as well. Um, and I, I think you, you probably agree with me that, that when anyone makes any sort of claim, there are three and only three competing explanations or categories, broad categories of explanation for why that claim is being made. One is that they're actually true, that the claim's true. One is that they're honestly mistaken somehow, and one is that they lied about it, right? There, I don't think there are any other categories of explanation beyond that. These are mutually exhaustive. Well, um, would, um, would somebody else lying about it come under the factor of them lying about it? Yeah, so if, if we know that the person actually made the claim. So, yeah, so you could say, for example, that taking the analogy to the Gospels, we could say that, that someone decades later claimed that this is what the apostles said, for example. Yeah. Um, but if we if we suppose, if we accept the premise that the, the apostles did in fact claim Jesus rose from the dead, yeah. then we can argue that one of those three contending explanations has to be correct. Let, let me see whether you would accept the structure of the argument in principle, um, even if you might disagree with the premises. If, if we were to show convincingly that the resurrection encounters, as reported by the gospel accounts, goes back to those um, original apostolic eyewitnesses. One of the following three hypotheses is true. Either Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles somehow um, mistakenly came to believe Jesus rose from the dead, or they deliberately lied that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, the nature of their claims makes it enormously improbable that they were honestly mistaken about it, because when you look at the the claims of the gospel records, they purport that Jesus appeared not just to individuals, but to groups of individuals, that they were polymodal, involving multiple sensory modes. They involved physical contact with Jesus. They involved group conversations with Jesus. They involved Jesus, Thomas requesting to see the prints of the nails and spear print uh, from his side. They involve eating breakfast with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, these things are very difficult to be honestly mistaken about, right? They, they involve long discourses with Jesus. Um, according to Acts 1, it was extending across a 40-day time period. So these, these things are very difficult to be honestly wrong about. And so that's enormously improbable. Um, and then so then really the two remaining contending hypotheses are Jesus rose from the dead or they deliberately lied about it. And the circumstances of the testimony of the apostles makes it, in my opinion, quite improbable that they were lying about it. Um, and you know the argument that they, they were they, the apostles seem to have been willing to to die and suffer persecution and immense uh, suffering um, as a result of their testimony, which is quite a bit more probable given the hypothesis of sincerity than given its falsehood. Um, and then you've got the fact that they use women witnesses, primary discoveries of the empty tomb and so forth, which is again, more probable given that this is what they really believed and the falsehood of that and so forth. And so do you see how such an argument could be wielded if you accept yeah. the premises, yes? Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, on the assumption that the premises are true. Yeah, I, I don't see how I could disagree with that. Okay, so if, so if it were shown that the claim about the resurrection in the gospel accounts, that that goes back to the original apostles. Would you think that the case for the resurrection were strong? If I was convinced that it came from them, then yeah, probably. I, I don't know what other things would have to fall into place. I've still got the issue of believing in God. And so there's a there's kind of a double-edged sword thing going on here in my mind. And 
certainly if you can get me to believe in God, that's based on the assumption that the apostle those uh, those narratives come from the apostles themselves. It becomes much much easier to believe. But trying to convince me of that when I don't already believe in God is too easy for me to come up with other objections to reject it. Wouldn't the evidence for the resurrection itself be evidence for God? Not primary, because humans being humans, they have written extraordinary stories. And before we went on to recording, we were talking about some of the extraordinary things that, that humans can believe. And we were uh, sharing and uh, expressing exasperation that some things that, that humans are prepared to believe, which we just don't appreciate. So um, it's way too easy to say, yeah, some people either believed some weird stuff or they wrote some weird stuff. And and so with yeah, so with the background of humans writing and believing weird stuff, this is a weird stuff which can easily go into that pile and and be lost in in the annals of, of human uh, literary history. It doesn't get me to the supernatural being of God. It I don't think it even gets me onto the step. So that, that would be a consideration uh, in terms of estimating the prior probability, right? So you would say that generally when we encounter what you consider to be weird stuff being testified to, it turns out to be false. And so likely this one also will turn out to be false or something to that effect. Yeah, um, that, That's a legitimate consideration to, to bring to the table in the same way that we might say that um, if we have a lottery and the lottery manager's lottery commissioner's son wins the lottery. Wins the lottery. It doesn't prove that something happened, but it's it seems there's a little bit of it's some evidence that something's amiss because um, in cases where that happens, it typically is the case that there's some sort of cheating going on, right? Yeah. So. Um, that, that's a that's a fair um, fair thing to bring to the table, but there are also other I would argue considerations which can raise the prior probability of the resurrection. Um, so I, I would argue. So I actually disagree with Carl Sagan um, and and yourself because I know you subscribe to this that um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and I have a, an essay on my website where I, I deal with it in quite a bit of detail. One of the uh, critiques I would I would make of that is let's suppose that we take any old Joe Blow who's died. Um, the probability that God would raise him from the dead, even supposing God exists, is astronomically small, right? Because we've got so many people that have died, and um, and it seems that none of them, or almost none of them, depending on your view of the resurrection of Jesus and, and Lazarus and, and people, um, but none of them, or almost none of them, have ever come back from the dead. And so given that someone has died, it's enormously improbable that they're going to be raised from the dead. And I completely accept that. I do think it follows from that, though, that the the prior probability of Jesus of Nazareth specifically rising from the dead is equally low. And when we look at um, the, the Messianic prophecy, for example, if, if we accept the premise that Jesus fulfills Messianic prophecy from the Old Testament, that provides a basis for thinking plausibly God has motivation for raising Jesus of Nazareth specifically from the dead. Um, also, if we accept the trilemma argument C.S. Lewis put forward, which basically says, that, okay, so if Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, which I, I think there's a good historical argument that he did, that's something that's very difficult to be honestly mistaken about. And he seems to have been sincere given the fact that he got himself crucified for it. And so that 
raises the probability of them actually being correct. And that in turn raises, raises the probability of them. Um, of, um, it increases the, the interior probability of the resurrection also. So do you see how there are ways of raising the probability in Jesus' case, at least in principle? I guess so. But it's we've got this basic disagreement on you know how much evidence is required to believe a, a claim. And for me, a, a resurrection claim is, is quite a big one. I, I made reference right to the beginning that I grew up in Zambia. In some rural parts of, of those cultures, you can hear some really, really strange stories. And one, one example of a story that I heard as a teenager was somebody, my, my dad had his own company uh, building houses at one point uh, in Zambia. And at one point, one of his employees told me in all seriousness that he could go to uh, a witch doctor who could put him in a trance. And when he woke up, he'd be in London. And the way this guy was telling me about it, it seemed quite clear that he believed it. Obviously, I didn't. <laughs> you know, to get to London required quite an expensive plane ticket and a nine-hour flight. You know, there was no way I was going to believe that a, a witch doctor in a hut could could magic me to to London. You know, by by smoking something. <laughs> you know, it might be quite a trip, but I don't think it'll be a London-bound trip. And I couldn't imagine any kind. Well, short of a, an actual demonstration, I can't really imagine any ways in, in which I could accept that had any kind of truth in it. And so accepting an ancient, uh, sorry, 2000 year old uh, resurrection, where I haven't even got the ability of, of somebody telling me firsthand about it, let alone the ability to try to test it out, is it's that kind of a uh, Categorical thing, so it's a, it's genuinely a really hard fence for me to climb to to accept that that kind of thing as being probable at all. Presumably, there is some level of evidence that could, in principle, persuade you of these things, right? It's hard when it's a two thousand year old single event. I mean, even a mundane thing, you know, it, where someone says it happened and it's easily believable still hard to think how it can be shown to be true you know somebody rode on a donkey between two cities yeah okay possibly if you're going to tell me a specific individual with a specific name on a specific day 2000 years ago did that journey well maybe but i don't know how i could believe it to be an absolute certainty and i think that's that's why i know you're not trying to say absolute certainty but it, it's I, I don't know how we could extract 2,000-year-old evidence for, for an event like that. So it, it's almost like it's an impasse because I, I just don't know how I could get there, which is why I said, get me to a point where I'm accepting that God exists. Then suddenly believing these things will become an awful lot easier for me. I, in my, in my current skeptical state of mind, I, I don't know what there is evidence-wise evidence that could get sure. me to to uh, entertain it as a, a so, as a viable event so Char charles babbage um who's a 19th century philosopher and mathematician uh wrote that uh, and i quote if independent witnesses can be found to speak the truth more frequently than falsehood it is always possible to assign a number of independent witnesses the improbability of the falsehood of whose uh, um, concurring testimonies should be greater than that of the improbability of the miracle itself, end quote. Um, and I think that's totally right, that no matter how improbable uh, a miracle might be, 
as long as it's not zero, there is a certain number of testimonies which would be sufficient to, to overcome that initial improbability of the miracle claim itself. Would you accept that in principle? I'm not sure because even if somebody is shown to be a reliable person on, on mundane or even slightly out, out of the way things, if they come out with something that's, that's outlandish, should I believe that based on the fact that they didn't lie to me about mundane things? It's a really hard place to go. And probably the best illustration I can show you of that is, is one of my grandfathers. He was a man of God. And to my knowledge, he never lied in, in his entire life. It's, it's possible as I certainly wasn't aware of them. He was a wonderful man. He died, what, 24 years ago. I, I still miss him. I can still picture him. I absolutely loved spending my, my teenage years with him. I consider it a treasure that uh, he was old enough to see me get married. Sorry that he died. That I, well, anyway, you know what I mean. But he told me this anecdote. Let's assume I'm remembering it correctly. He told me, Samadot, that he was born in a room that overlooked the Taj Mahal in India. Now, it's possible that he said he lived or visited uh, a, a room where he could see the Taj Mahal out the window, but my memory says he was born in it. But let's not quibble about which one of those it was. And so I carried this story with me for years. I was like, why would my granddad ever make up a, a story like this? You know, it, it's it's not the sort of thing that he would make something up about. And so I believed this for years. Eventually, I had an opportunity to find out where he was born. And he was born in India, but he was born in Ambala, which is hundreds of miles away from where, where the Taj Mahal is. So the anecdote, as I remembered it, was blatantly false. But of course, he'd already died by the time that I found this out. So I could never dig in to find out the truth of it. So me believing that story, because my grandfather was always a trustworthy, reliable person, was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it, it's it's this kind of thing. I don't mind. I don't. I don't care. That sounds. Um, that, that sounds a bit provocative. But but yeah, I, I'm not sure that. The, the previous reliability on mundane things is necessarily a good thing for yeah. something that's less mundane. I, I think that it is epistemically relevant, and here's why. So, if, if it is, so if the gospel accounts um, can be shown to be correct on minor peripheral mundane things, things that would be difficult to get right unless the writer was an eyewitness or someone who spoke to eyewitnesses, then um, if, if we can build a cumulative case where we have dozens and dozens and dozens of these examples, then uh, that provides, I think, a robust case that the authors of the Gospels and Acts are individuals who are close up to the facts, well-informed and habitually reliable and trustworthy and truthful. And, and that is directly relevant to the resurrection because if, um, if the resurrection claims that are given to us in the Gospels actually go back to the eyewitnesses, then we have to explain why they make the claims that we find in the Gospels, which includes the multi-sensory nature and character of the resurrection appearances and their extension across 40 days and so forth, uh, the, the long and discourses of Jesus following his resurrection, which are very difficult to explain on the hypothesis of being honestly mistaken. And furthermore, interestingly, uh, Jesus returns from the dead on the Sunday, right? The, um, and, and that's as interesting, First Corinthians 15 mentions that 
Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and scholars debate as to exactly what it means, because where's that third day motif in the Old Testament, right? We have reference to the resurrection in the Old Testament, but there's no obvious reference to it being on the third day specifically. Um, and in that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Christ being the first fruits from among the dead or for those that fall asleep, which harks back to Leviticus 23, where you have the first fruits feast, where, um, where the Israelites would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest being the guarantor that the rest of the harvest would also be delivered. And the fact that Christ is raised on the, on the, on the on, and that, that was to be celebrated according to Leviticus 23 on the day following the first Sabbath following Passover, which would be Sunday following Passover. So the fact then that Jesus is actually raised according to the biblical text on the third day, and the, the sources are unanimous on that, all four gospels say that, um, that is, um, that that, point, that seems to me to point to design because you've got the the theological or symbolic import of that, and so that again points away from the apostles being honestly mistaken, and points to design either on the part of God or in the part of human authors manipulating the story. And so again, I think that you really are left with these two options: either they you've got this conspiracy theory, or you've got the hypothesis that Jesus really did rise from the dead, right? Yes, I would add in an option of an evolved narrative. I mean, isn't this, there this idea that the Gospels aren't individually written in isolation, that there's actually lots of shared content between them and even the suggestion that there's actually an additional document that they've pulled information from. So I would probably go with it's an evolved story. And I think that's probably where I'm most comfortable on that. Yeah, because narratives and stories that grow you know i'm old enough to remember but having experiences of trying to share tell a story with my brothers about something that happened and we all tell it slightly differently and one of us has got this wild version of it uh, which we all raise our eyebrows at so these kinds of things happen yeah and uh, i have no idea if I, I mentioned if i've discussed it with you in my own thing but i've got this own thing in my own mother's lifetime we had there was an incident in, in zambia where my mother was was kidnapped for a day and i won't go into all the gory details of what of what happened there it's quite a quite dramatic and some really terrible things happened that day and she was eventually rescued by the police by the time it got to her funeral 30 years later there was somebody standing up saying that what had happened was they the church had got together and they had a big prayer meeting and there'd been a, a clap of thunder and the, the people who were kidnapped here had got scared that God was intervening and let her go. Uh, completely and utterly false narrative. And the very and I'd grown up on the story of this kidnapping because it's a significant event in, in my family's history. There's it's mentioned in at least two books as far as I, I can remember. This whole miracle part of it never featured at all. <laughs> until the day of her funeral. And I questioned my brother about it. I said, where did this come from? And he said, actually, there's a document that we've got written that, that mum wrote, which mentions it. And I said, really? Anyway, going through her stuff, I found this document and it, this document was written 10 years after the event. It doesn't mention any of the moments from the miracle. It just talks about the facts about what happened, which align well with the book that the story is written in. But there's no mention of end of the prayer meeting or the or the thunder or being released. She actually talked about in detail of being taken in a truck to meet the police who who took her away. So I know that this miraculous account that was described uh, about her is is utter fiction. What I don't know is how it got there. I don't know who instigated it. I don't know how many people talked about it. 
all I know is somebody on the day of a funeral talk about. So these things happen within somebody's uh, life cycle, and I, I, I assure you, it's quite distressing when it happens to somebody that that that, that you that you love. I can certainly see how things like this can evolve quite extraordinarily within a relatively uh, short period of time. I'm not going to offend anybody by trying to come up with an idea of how we got to a resurrection from a point where I don't believe it happened. I, I think it would, it would be to insult people's intelligence to to do that, and I think I'll probably be wrong. But I'm I'm more convinced that there's a likelihood that it evolved from something much more mundane and got to what it is. But I won't go down the road of speculating how that might have happened. Sure. I mean, in regards to so the first point you brought up there was the literary dependence of the Gospels. And um, you're absolutely right that the Gospels, Matthew and Luke tend to draw upon Mark quite a bit. And um, and, and scholars argue that uh, the, sort of the mainstream scholarly consensus is that um, this was known as a two-source hypothesis where Matthew and Luke utilize Mark as a source and then Matthew and Luke also have another source called Q that they're using as a source because sometimes they agree where Mark diverges um, but it's, there was also independence among the Gospels as well um, scholars debate to how much to what extent John is independent of the synoptics I tend to think there's some literary dependence but I, I think that John is much more independent of the synoptics and the synoptics are on each other um, but there's also even independence within the synoptics. Um, the, in particular, the Passion and Resurrection accounts um, seem to be largely independent of each other. Um, and uh, the, the Resurrection accounts also seem to be very, uh, not, not particularly, there's no signs of legendary embellishment. So, for example, um, one of the key texts in Second Temple Judaism concerning Resurrection is Daniel 12, where the righteous of Israel portrayed as shining like stars at the general resurrection, mass resurrection at the end of history. But no one ever thinks to portray Jesus as shining like a star, which is a legendary embellishment that you might expect. There are also um, other feature, other interesting features of the resurrection accounts, which seem unlikely inventions. Uh, the, the fact that women are the chief witnesses of the empty tomb, for example, seems unlikely if it's a legendary embellishment, because um, any later account probably have, have male witnesses be the chief witnesses of the empty tomb. So there's also the fact that they seem to be devoid of theological reflection, Matthew in particular loves to say this was done so the scripture might be fulfilled and he quotes the scripture, but with the resurrection narrative, there's none of that at all. In my assessment, there's the gospel accounts seem to be devoid of that sort of theological reflection, legendary embellishment, and also seem to go back very early. So 1 Corinthians 15, for example, um, verse 3 through 8, which is the famous uh, creedal, oral creedal tradition, um, whatever seed I pass on to you is first important, so Christ died for his sins in the course of the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised again in the third day in the course of the scriptures, and so forth, and then it talks about the different appearances. Um, that seems to go back fairly early. Um, and the resurrection belief seems to be something that was very widespread. It goes back very early. There's, there seems to be no sect of early Christianity that denied the resurrection. Um, it's something that seems to have been quite universal. And also the, the, the gospels, as I've said before, um, seem to be grounded in substantially reliable eyewitness testimony. Um, just one example quickly. Um, so this is, so in Matthew chapter 10, this is this is an illustrative example of a phenomenon that you see throughout the Gospels, where there's this interesting correlation between the uh, frequencies of names and the use of a disambiguator or qualifier. So um, my 
qualify or to submit you into a clutch, you to distinguish me from other Jonathans who shared my first name. And the ancient world also had these sorts of qualifiers or disambiguators. Um, and you may have heard this before, but this is from Matthew 10, where it lists the 12 apostles. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon. Now, he's number one ranking in Palestine, first in terms of male Jewish names. So, First Simon, high-ranking, called Peter. So you've got disambiguator or qualifier. And Andrew, his brother, is low-ranking, but he's nonetheless identified in relation to his brother. And James, who's a high-ranking, number 11th name, um, and the son of Zebedee, which is a qualifier. And John, number five-ranking, his brother. Philip, a 61st equal, so low-ranking, no qualifier. And Bartholomew, 50th equal, so no ranking, no qualifier. Uh, Thomas, not even the top um, 100 male names, so no qualifier. Matthew, high ranking, number nine, the tax collector, qualifier. James, qualifier, the son of Alphaeus. Um, he's got a high ranking name, number 11. Thaddeus, low ranking name, number 39th equal, no qualifier. Simon, high ranking name, the Canaan, qualifier. And Judas, high ranking name, Iscariot, who also uh, a qualifier, who also betrayed him. So you see that sort of correlation where the names that have high frequencies also have a qualifier or disambiguator. And the frequencies of names differs quite starkly between Palestine and Egypt, just that even the male Jewish names differ, um, even the male Jewish names differ quite radically between Palestine and Egypt, and also they vary over time as well, just as they do today. Um, names like Archibald and Nancy are less popular today than they were like 50 years ago. So, um, uh, and and so that that sort of pattern, and even, even if you are close up to the facts, your intuition about the relative frequencies of names is unlikely to be very reliable. And so that, uh, that pattern seems to me to be something that's very difficult to fake and suggest that the authors are indeed close up to the facts. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, my obvious question is, what's the, what's the data that's being compared with to, to get the names? You, do you mean uh, what's the source? So the sources would be ossuaries and documentary sources from okay. the first century Palestine. Yeah. Okay. So this, this analysis on the names was conducted by Richard Balkan, he's a British okay. scholar. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a name I, I've, I've heard before. And do we know what time period they, they cover either side of? Um, uh, I forget exactly, but I could check that for you. Okay. I'm, it's just I'm... I'm I, I have heard of it, but I've not analysed it in, in detail. But I am I am vaguely familiar with this. the The point of the questions was, you know, does a few decades really make any difference to the to these kinds of names? I would imagine that the names' popularity would possibly not move as much as they do nowadays. I mean, you know, the, these days with uh, global news, etc., name popularity can can change quite quickly. It wasn't that long ago when Kylie was a really popular name? You know, now it's you know, there, there are other pop star names which are which are more popular. I suspect that Donald will become a very unpopular name in the next couple of years. So, you know, I, I would imagine that that during that period, the popularity of names might might change on a lower frequency. So, I, I don't see it being an issue. But what's interesting, though, is that the apocryphal sources from the second, third, fourth century. The, the the Gnostic and apocryphal gospels, they don't have that. They don't have that correspondence. So it doesn't pan out for those because they are far okay. removed from the facts. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also, I mean, the, the Book of Acts gets lots of difficult things right. In the Book of Acts, in particular, there's more than a hundred examples of these sorts of um, hard things that the Book of Acts gets right. We're not talking about easy things like who was the emperor at the time that everyone would have known, but very specific 
nuanced things that is best explained by the author being a witness to that which he talks about. And if Luke, if, if Luke or the author of Acts was someone who was indeed a traveling companion of Paul and was indeed, as he claims to be, with Paul in Acts 21, when Paul visits Jerusalem, then he actually met with the Jerusalem elders, including James and the other apostles. Uh, he was imprisoned along with Paul in Caesarea Maritima for two years. And so he, that would just got quite close to Jerusalem. So he would have had access to that treasure trove of living witnesses to Jesus' ministry and his resurrection. And therefore, um, and Luke seems to indicate that he, in his prologue to his gospel, that he got information from eyewitnesses. Um, so that would be quite consistent with that. He would have access. He, he not only claims that he interviewed he, or, or that he received information from eyewitnesses, but that um, he also um, shows evidence of actually having access to those eyewitnesses. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Getting little things right, for me, is fair enough. And probably, certainly, it would probably imply that some early knowledge was used, or sorry, what am I trying to say? It would certainly imply that there was some basic documentation or basic stories that were certainly used as a foundation and certainly stuff that was known. It's a really hard leap to get me from those more mundane things correlate to something that's the complete opposite of mundane that's that's the leap leap for me i'm i'm quite happy to accept that those mundane things correlate to this kind of low level knowledge and uh, and legacy and uh, stories coming down whether they were written down or transferred verbally whether they were written by a third party or whether they're written by the original it's is very very little consequence to me it's getting from those things even if they're all 100% right for the reasons I've already mentioned earlier, it doesn't get me to that that really special thing. And it's for this whole thing that we disagree on about. Right. This is something that's really extraordinary. So I need something that is a little bit more special to get me to take it more seriously. So would you at least grant that demonstration of accuracy on difficult mundane matters, and especially when highly specific, is epistemically relevant to the less mundane matters yes yes i'll go that i'll go i'll go in that direction without too much difficulty yeah okay so it's, it's getting, it's getting me to the extraordinary yeah so so it is but it is epistemically relevant because if because demonstrating the correctness of the accounts on difficult and specific mundane matters um shows that they are indeed individuals who are close up to the facts and well informed. And that is directly relevant to showing the resurrection because it, it shows that these resurrection accounts also come from those same authors. Yes. Um, but for the mundane things, there's no consequence to whether I, I believe them or not. You know, if we, let, let's just pick something mundane. A street boy stole a roll of bread from a, from a baker and ran off and he escaped with, with it. Okay. Yeah, fine whether I believe it or not is of absolutely zero consequence uh, to my life today. And if something else is accurate, then okay, yeah, maybe he saw that as well. But it does absolutely nothing. It's the extraordinary event, the, the resurrection, the consequences of accepting that, believing that are quite literally life changing. There's an enormous consequence to accepting that. Related to the consequences of accepting that, I need that elevated level of assuredness to be able to get there. Sure. And so I, I think what you're saying is that although the prior probability is not affected by how much is going to impact your life, 
nonetheless, you need a higher level of, you need to attain a higher posterior probability in order to, um, in order to justify embracing Christianity again. Is that fair, Sorry. Yeah, it's probably a little bit more nuanced, but yeah, you're, it's, it's definitely in the right kind of ballpark. Okay, cool. So how much certainty would you need in the resurrection in order for you to consider being a Christian? That is a surprisingly difficult question to answer, although it would probably need to be 100%. I mean, I was 100% sure of, sure of it when I believed. And if I believed again, I would probably need to be because it, it is, it's, it's the linchpin of uh, the entirety of the Christian message. So I don't know how I could be a Christian and not be anything but 100%. Or, I'm not although the Bishop of Durham in the UK did call into question the resurrection um, 30 years ago, didn't he? So. Yeah, that, that is correct. But I, I mean, I'm not 100%, right? So I, I'm a Christian. So let's, let's suppose that, um, I mean, I, I would say that I'm not certain Christianity is true, but I'm confident that it's true. Okay. Um, and I, I, I would argue that um, what one thing, one of my pet peeves actually is um, atheists talking about the word faith, because faith, in my opinion, so you don't. Re- no beliefs do not require faith right faith is something which is warranted in response to evidence so i would argue that faith is directly correlative with the amount of evidence the more evidence we have the more faith is warranted in a particular position so the so there's a direct correlation in my view between the amount of faith that i exercise and the amount of evidence i have for a particular proposition in which to which i need to commit myself um so let's let's suppose hypothetically that you were 95 percent convinced that jesus rose from the dead would you lose any sleep <laughs> probably yeah let's take it in the context that without anything else by the end of this video call you were able to convince me that the resurrection was true to that level of uh, confidence and none of the other christian beliefs were, were in me at that point yeah i would have a terribly sleepless night over it i i absolutely would because if it did happen okay, I'm in a, currently in a position where I, I doubt it and I really don't know how I could believe it. But if that event did happen, regardless of whether or not I believe it did, of course I'd want to know because the consequences are, are as I've already said, enormous. So I absolutely would want to know. And yes, if you were able to get me to that point where I was doubting my doubts to to that level of severity, it would be more than one night of lost sleep, but I, I can assure you. Okay, and what about if it was eighty percent? Probably very similar. Okay. It, it would. Um... So, does the evidence that we've talked about and you've studied on other occasions for the resurrection does it make you wonder whether Christianity might actually be true after all, even if you're not fully sold on it? Not anymore, because I did all that wondering during my my deconstruction process, and all of the stress and all of the sleepless nights and, and all that happened during that period. And, and for me, the, the basic question was, how far is it reasonable to go wanting something to be true and not being able to get that need scratched? How far is it reasonable to go before you say, I give up? And I've gone past that point where I give up. So I I don't lose any sleep over it now. I don't wonder seriously about it now because what I haven't told you about is all those things that happen post deconstruction. You know, 
th- those 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 moments of, of self doubt, those moments of anger at your your former belief, then you know the the the, the questioning, and then the the, the depression about well, how could I have been so stupid to believe all all that thing, all that stuff, all came after uh, uh, after the process. So. I've gone to the point where, to use a colloquialism, the, the ship has sailed. You know, I've done my wondering. I, I've done my questioning. I've done my begging on my knees. I've done my crying myself to sleep, begging God to do something to reveal himself to me, to something to help me to to believe because I needed to. I've I've been through all that. And, you know, I'm at the point where I am now because I didn't get what I'd been begging for. So, So for me, what was critical was, how far do I do that before that's it, before the door's shut, before I'm done? How far, how often do you look for the keys under this, under the cushion on the sofa before you come to conclusion that they're not under the cushion on, on the sofa? And that was the, the point that I've, I've got to, and I passed that a long time ago. So I don't really wonder, I don't, nothing really causes me much concern. I would need something quite significant to happen for me to backtrack that. I don't necessarily mean a Damascus Road event because drugs might be able to explain that, but it, I would need something quite significant to yank me back. I'm comfortable in my non-belief now because I've been through the stress. I know I said the ship has sailed, that that kind of implies a finality. I don't, I'm not the kind of a- atheist who says, uh, no, uh, no, never. But I do. Ne- I would need something quite significant for me to to go. Okay, now it's time to to reanalyze. But because I am, I'm genuinely quite comfortable in my in my non belief now. The okay. obvious follow on question is what, but I don't know what the answer to that is. Do you think do you think that could take the form of historical evidence, or would it need to be something more immediate and experiential for you? I don't know how I could get to historical evidence because history, by definition, is really hard to examine you know i've got my own i've given my own examples for my own family where you know something from history recent history my own lifetime not 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 my own lifetime but you know people who i knew history and they they turned out to be less than accurate so to go back even further in time it's really hard and i don't know how we could short of a time machine i really don't know how i could be confident enough in those events for me to seriously reconsider personal experience Maybe, but again, if it can be explained by drugs or dodgy foods or something else, then um, God needs to do something a little bit better than that. Um, but I'm, so I'm not going to rule out experience, but I don't know how an experience could do it. So if we were to suppose hypothetically that Christianity, instead of being based on the resurrection, was based on something like um, Titus's destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 or Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, would you be more inclined to be a Christian? if it was based on one of those events? Ah, good question. Unlikely. It's funny you should mention the Rubicon because in preparation for something completely separate, I came across this snippet about, I think it's Suetonius who wrote something about the crossing of the Rubicon. And in his account of it, he talks about this figure, tall and full of glory, whatever, who appears before Caesar when Caesar's doing his thinking, gives Caesar the, the confidence and uh, he steps into the water. And I can't remember what words are said about let the die be cast or whatever. I think that's the phrase. Um, and then this figure disappears. And you, you read it through and on a superficial reading, it sounds like an angel 
it reads like an angel visitation. So reading through that, I have no problem whatsoever with the crossing of the Rubicon as an event, but do I believe the account from Suetonius of this figure appearing be, um, before Caesar and them having this conversation and giving him that confidence and then this figure disappearing again? Well, I don't believe that part of the account. So it's it's back to this whole thing of, yeah, there are things which are mundane, which I, I can accept, but this is an example of an ancient historical narrative which has something in it which reads like it's a fabrication that's inserted into the story, either by Suetonus himself or or somebody else. But that figure of that narr- that narrative about that particular individual reads like utter fabrication to me. Okay, well, maybe that's a good place to stop. But uh, we've been going for an hour and fifty minutes, I think. What we so, oh, uh, golly, we so we have. <laughs> so that that was a really great conversation, though, Matthew. Thanks for for coming on, and we'll need to do this again sometime on another topic. Yes, uh, thank you, Jonathan. You, we, we did hint about some things. It will be great. This really was great. Um, I listened to your conversation with with Jake earlier, and I appreciated that. And I was confident that we could have a, a, a similar amicable conversation. So, so thank you for that. I really do enjoy this. Sometimes on social media, I can be a little bit spiky. I, I accept that. I'm glad that this wasn't. So, so good. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. And thank you to people who are listened and I'm quite happy to answer any follow-on questions I've not seen what comments are, are down there please be nice to me yeah I'll, I'll answer questions that can be answered if people have anything well um thank you and uh we'll sign off here and uh, I'll sign off the live stream but and folks um, also remember to subscribe um, um and uh, click the notification bell and also go over to the still unbelievable podcast and check out uh, Matthew's material there as well. In particular, uh, the conversations I've done on Matthew's own podcast, um, I think, are quite instructive also in, in talking about uh, probability and miracles, the resurrection, and that kind of thing. So go check those out as well. All right, signing off here, and I'll see you guys in a future live stream. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.